0: Thank you. Thank you, Caleb. Uh, Our kids can head back to be with our team in Transformation Station. And I would like to invite you to open your copy of God's eternal word to the book of Haggai. We're going to be in the book of Haggai this morning. And... um, That would be the the third to last book of the Old Testament. Okay, so if you can find Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first four books of the New Testament, you can just flip back a few pages, and you will run into the book of Haggai. Now, if you're using one of the Bibles we provided for you, there, uh, you can have some really great help and turn to page 791. And as you're turning there, um, I'm I'm really excited about this short series. We're going to be in Haggai for three weeks. And I just wanted to ask by show of hands, hey, who has read the book of Haggai this year in your Bible? Not like ever, but like who's read the book of Haggai this year in your Bible reading plan? Um, so we've got, yeah, like like maybe 2% of uh, the people, which is cool. You know, it's not an indictment, all right, at all, because maybe you just, you know, you're not there yet. I mean... If I weren't preaching through it, perhaps I'd be in the same you know, s- spot, all right? But, but I did want to kind of point that out because a lot of times we as, as Christians, unless we're taught, and hopefully this year we've helped with this at Redemption Hill, um, we don't necessarily know how to relate uh, the New Testament to the Old Testament, we have this false heretical view that the God of the Old Testament is different from the God of the New Testament, which is completely false, all right? God is one. He's never changed. Jesus and the Father, God the Father, are one. Okay, we see Jesus in the Old Testament as much as we see the Father and Spirit in the New Testament, okay? So we could go on and on about that. The point I want to make is all of Scripture— and when Jesus says the scripture must not be broken, that I've come to fill the law the prophets, um, nothing will be removed from the law, he's talking about the Old Testament. Timothy, uh, Paul writing to Timothy, when he says all scripture is being breathed out by God, he's, he's primarily talking about the Old Testament, all right? And then, of course, the New Testament is inspired as well by God, and now we have that in the 27 books. But I just wanted to, to point these things out Uh, so that hopefully it alleviates some of your apprehension. Man, Tanner, we're in Haggai. I've never heard of this book before. Why are we going to study it for three weeks? Well, we're going to study it for three weeks because not only is is it God's word, but it has an extremely potent message for us as God's people today. All right? So I just want to cover some introductory material as we dive into the book of Haggai. And, and everything that I'm going to share with you basically could be found in the beginning of like a study Bible, right? Which is why we encourage people to grab a study Bible, uh, like maybe the ESV study Bible. And, and every time, just so you know, every, almost every time without fail, before I devotionally read through a book of the Bible, even in my own devotional times, I will go to my ESV study Bible and I will look up many of the things that I'm about to explain to you about Haggai. Hey, who wrote this book? When did he write it? What was the historical situation going on? What are the primary theological themes that I should come away with? What is the purpose of this book, and why has God given it to us in the pages of Scripture? Okay, you with me? So that's where we're going as we dive into this tiny two-chapter book. Now, who was Haggai? Haggai is described in this book that bears his name as a prophet. He is described as a messenger of the Lord. And like like any prophet and any messenger of God, his job was simple, okay? It was to speak God's words, to communicate what God had revealed to him for the people, all right? And let me just say this. Anytime someone is speaking uh, about God's word, that should be their goal, all right? So, so Sunday morning, anyone preaching, standing here, opening God's book, our job is simple. We, we say what God has said in his word. And you say like, "Yay, yeah, good for you, Tanner, and now we know what your job description is. Okay, here's some news for you. This is your job description as well, all right? If, if you are a Christian and you are in Christ and God has given you his word and he most certainly has, then anytime that you sit down across from a friend and open the Bible, you're in your community group and you're talking about the scriptures or you're in you know, the park and, and kind of hanging out and you have an opportunity to tell people about Jesus. Okay, our job as Christians is to say what God has said in his word because it's his word that is truth. It's his word that gives life. It's his word that is the only uh, thing that can change someone from the inside out. So that's Haggai. He had a really awesome job, even though it wasn't always an easy job to faithfully communicate what God has spoken in his word. Now, let's ask another question. When did he serve God? All right. Haggai served God in a time that was simultaneously exciting, but it was also a very difficult time. You may remember from two weeks ago when we looked at the the prophet Hosea, another, what they're known as the minor prophets, 12 books at the end of the Old Testament are called the minor prophets, and that's primarily due to the the brevity of the books in comparison with the major prophets of Hosea. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel, okay? So when you think minor, don't think less important. Think brief, pointed, God's communicating something still very powerful through them. And so Hosea, also one of the minor prophets, had the job, do you remember this, of portraying to Israel the spiritual state of their souls before God, that God was like a husband who loved his people, and they were like an unfaithful, adulterous spouse who went out and committed prostitution with all of these idols around them. It was a very heavy message, but it was a very Strong message with the aim of awakening the people to come back in faithfulness and love to their God. And so in Old Testament history, what we have, just a quick run through of Old Testament history, you have God choosing Abraham to say, you are going to be the one through whom I will bless the nations and I will make your descendants as many as the stars in the sky. You won't even be able to count the number of your descendants. And so it's it's through Abraham that God raises up a people for himself known as Israel. Israel spent uh, roughly 400 years in slavery in Egypt, and then God takes them on an exodus. We looked at this at the beginning of this year, and he eventually brings them into the promised land. The people start to clamor for a king. Hey, God, you're, you're a great king, but what we really want is an earthly king to kind of help us do our thing, protect us from our enemies. And so they, they clamor for this king, and God says, okay, if you want it your way, which is not the best way, then I'll give you a king. His name was Saul. That basically went well for a short period of time, then became disastrous, and then God raises up a good king, Israel's greatest king, named David. David leads Israel into great years uh, of of military victory and prosperity, and and, and for the most part, in in good spiritual condition, and he has a son named Solomon, and then it's after Solomon that that the, the kingdom of Israel becomes unstable. In fact, it's broken. It's divided into two kingdoms. And king after king, then we see this, this uh, pattern of some kings really love God and were righteous. Some kings were not so, uh, not so righteous. And they led the people into unfaithfulness and idolatry. And so what you have then is God raising up messengers who are what? They're supposed to speak what? God's words to God's people. And they were warning the people, just like Hosea, to say, you need to come back to God. You have to return to God. You have to fulfill your end of the covenant relationship to love him with all of your heart. And so they were warning. They were warning the people, saying, if you do not repent, that means turn back to God, then you are going to experience the discipline of God and you are going to go into exile. In other words, God is going to raise up a foreign nation to capture you, take you into captivity, and this will be a sign that, hey, I love you so much that I'm not going to let you just chill in your sin, basically. And so Hosea was check this language out, a pre-exilic prophet, okay? Isaiah was a pre-exilic prophet. In other words, before Israel went into exile in Babylon, they were saying, hey, you need to come back to God. You need to turn back to God and love God. And of course, the people failed to do that. And so God is good on his promise and he brings them into exile in Babylon for roughly 70 years, now, Babylon, okay, this is, again, a little Old Testament history, Babylon is eventually overthrown by a Persian king named Cyrus, and Cyrus gives an edict that frees the people to return back to Jerusalem, just as God had said he would do. And so that is when, okay, that, that's the, all background to, to know that now we are coming to this moment as the the Exiles return to their homeland. As the Israelites return to Jerusalem, they are to re engage in the worship of God in their homeland. And part of the primary task for them was to rebuild the temple, which, as Caleb mentioned a minute ago, was, was a center for worship for them. And so part of God's covenant commitment was to dwell with his people, to be their, their God. And part of the people's commitment was to then worship God and to seek him with all of their heart. And so the people come back, and, and you know, we might expect that they're excited, right, to be coming home, and they're filled with thanksgiving and gratitude and, and worship. And, and, and for the, the first uh, bit of time, that was the case. But then they faced some opposition, and their hearts grew dull, and they stopped Working on the temple. They stopped rebuilding the temple. And so that is where we come to the book of Haggai, all right? And God taps this guy on the shoulder named Haggai, and he says, Hey, I need you to stand up and speak a message to the people that will stir them up to re engage in proper worship of me. And I want you to speak to them that, that they might rebuild the temple that now lies in ruins. And so I hope you can see in all of this that not only do you have them coming back into their homeland and the temple is, is lying in ruins and they need to rebuild it, but actually if, if we look a little closer, the physical uh, rubble of the temple is is a reflection of what's going on in their hearts. In other words, man, man, their hearts weren't weren't constructed in a way that they were worshiping God. Their their hearts were, were spiritually in ruins as well because they weren't prioritizing God as the first place in their lives. And so it's in, in 520 BC that Haggai stands up, and his job was to call people to attention. And, and he does this in a very strong way with, with the refrain that we see four times in this two-chapter book, okay? And it's, it's simply this. He calls them four different times to consider your ways. Consider your ways. This is his message, he wants them to reflect. He wants them to consider what, what is going on in their life and what is going on in their heart that they might turn back to God. So, so this straightforward message that Haggai delivers to the people could be summarized like this, okay? Consider your ways and prioritize living for God's glory. Simple as that. Consider your ways and prioritize living for for God's glory. Now, what I want to do is break this chapter down with two encouragements, all right? Two encouragements for us to take away this morning. The first one is this. Honestly assess your spiritual condition in light of the greatness of God. Honestly assess your spiritual condition in light of the greatness of God. Look at verses 1 and 2 of this little book we know as Haggai. Says this, in the second year of Darius, the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shetil, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts: these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of. Of the Lord. All right, so so let me break this down. What we have here is, again, God kind of tapping Haggai on the shoulder, saying, Hey, I want you to go take my message to my people, but you're going to work through these leaders. You have the political leader, Zerubbabel, and you have the, the spiritual leader, the high priest, Joshua. And so Haggai goes to them, and as, as he is addressing them, that message will eventually spread to all the people. And, it's, and, and, it's, and the first thing that God says is this. He quotes the people, what they're saying, what they're murmuring around the city and in their houses and in their homes as they walk by the temple. I mean, it has to be in their conscience. Man, this was the place where we came and offer sacrifices to God and worship God, and yet it's still laying in ruins. This had to be a major black eye on their... Not only their, their people, their nation, but also in terms of their own spiritual conscience to see this each day. But how do they respond? Verse two tells us, hey, it's not, it's not time yet. You know, like we'll, we'll get around to that. We know that's important, but it's not yet time to work on God's house. And, and, and let me just pause and say, like, how many times do we do this in our spiritual lives? Hey, it's, 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 not, it's not time yet. I'm not sure I, I can work that out. My calendar's kind of packed. I know that would be great. I know that God wants me to live in this kind of way, but I can't really make him the priority because I've got too many things to do. You know what I'm saying? I, don't have, I, don't, I can't get around to those spiritual matters. Um, you know, I've got to work on that next career goal. I've got to get my five-year plan together. I've got to save up enough money. Hey, and you know what? Man, God wants us to have fun, doesn't he? Man, I'm going to have a little more fun. I'm going to do a little, you know, my thing for a little bit longer, and then I'll get around to doing God's thing. Have you ever Have you ever been there? perhaps in, in some measure you're like there right now in your life is, man, like, and what's happening here is the people of Israel are essentially winking at God. Like, yeah, God, we love you. We know that you're important, but, but we're going to continue to operate on our watch, and we're going to do what we want to do. And so all of their apparent spiritual devotion and Going back to Jerusalem was nothing more than lip service. It's as the pre-exilic prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 29, 13, this people, they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. So many times as Christians, we talk a good spiritual game. We even act a good spiritual game. and we're in church on most, most Sundays, you know? We're, we're like trying to, to be involved, but, but, but even in our involvement, we can sometimes just go through the spiritual motions and not be wholly devoted to God. So God wanted to make his message extremely relevant and abundantly clear, and so look at what Haggai goes on to say in verses three and four, says this, then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet, and he says this, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? I mean, I just, I love this about God. I mean, he's God after all. So he can make a really strong argument. If you read the gospels, when people tried to trip Jesus up, he could just like turn the situation right on them by asking one simple question. You know, that's the wisdom of of Christ. And this is the wisdom of God. He hears what they're murmuring. Hey, you know, it's not time yet. And so God just with a one-to-one kind of argument and it's airtight. He says, hey, uh, people, is it time for you? to live in these nice homes, be all comfortable, perhaps somewhat luxurious, pursuing your own ways, but, but, it's, but it's not time to, to worship me and, and give yourselves wholly to me? Look at what he says in verse 4. It, it, look, he says, is it time for you yourselves? Okay. So, so this is a way to really help the people reflect. It's, it's emphatic. Hopefully they're, they're considering, you know, you know what we do like when, and maybe you're doing this now and we hear God's word from someone, you know, like we start thinking about, you know, someone around us. We start justifying our behavior, you know, like, man, you know, I, I know I may not be giving God enough time in my life, but man, what about that guy? You know what I'm saying? What, what about, what about that girl, man? Like, you know, like, I'm here, I'm, I'm here at least a couple Sundays a month, man, I only see them once every other, you know what I'm saying? Like, And so we justify our actions by by comparing ourselves to those around us. When God is just saying, hey, look, you yourselves, look within, answer this question for yourself. Don't justify your behavior. And then this this next description on the, the paneled houses, at minimum, what this tells us is that they were seeking their own comfort rather than prioritizing the worship of God. And so as one Old Testament scholar said, it's not for a lack of money, but a lack of will that prevented them from building God's house. And in verse nine, look down in verse nine of chapter one, this, this, God continues to hammer this home when he, when he says this. You look for mush and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins While each of you busies himself with his own house. Spending time on our selfish desires, rather on the things of God. And so we should step back and say, okay, then what is the solution? God doesn't expose our sinful hearts. This is how good God is, by the way. God doesn't say, hey, you know what, you're not measuring up, you're you're not living according to my ways, you're not glorifying me, and then just kind of leave us there, but he actually gives us instructions to help us glorify him and, oh, by the way, find joy in the process, because that's the only place where true joy is found is in performing God's will in our lives. And so the solution comes in verse five when he says this for the first time, consider your ways, Look at verse 5. Now, therefore, the Lord of hosts says, consider your ways. The NIV says, give careful thought to your ways. The the paraphrase um, of of the Bible that was put out by Eugene Peterson called The Message. Okay, it's not a translation. It's a paraphrase that's different. Um, But he says this. It's, It's helpful in colloquial terms. He says, take a good, hard look at your life. Think about it. I mean, I want to pose to you this morning that it is good to hit pause in your life to just step back and and, and give an honest assessment of how you are doing before God. Because, because if, if you don't do that, then I'm going to tell you what happens, okay? You, you stay so busy and so distracted that you never really see what's going on, okay? Um, and, and, or number two, um, we're, we're, we're so sinful that we just deceive ourselves and think we're there when we're not really there. So it's so pivotal that we would step back and consider our ways, reflect on how we've been living our lives and the results that are flowing from how we're living our lives. The Hebrew is actually an, an idiom, okay? It's, a, it's just a, 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 way, a way with words that maybe doesn't add up literally, but it communicates a message. Okay, that's an idiom. And, and it says this. It says um, that you should put your heart on your roads. See that? Put your heart on your roads. In other words, take your life and put it on your ways and see, see where your heart is by the way that, that you're living your life. It's a, it's, it's, that's why it's translated, consider your ways. Give careful attention to how you're living your life. And so, so what we have here, again, and this is so typical of the prophets, it's, it's a wake-up call. It's like the alarm clock is going off and Haggai is saying, please step back and consider where you are before God. And I want to encourage us all to do that this morning, okay? Wherever you may be before God this morning, God is calling us to step back and see where we are before him so that we can make the necessary adjustments and modifications in order to more wholeheartedly live our lives for him. So when Haggai gives this message from God that says, consider your ways, he is after a whole life assessment. That is, that is what he's talking about when he says your ways. It's, it's, it's not just kind of what they were doing that week or just in one particular area of their life. No, he wants them to assess holistically where they are in their life before God. And what I want to do is, is, is challenge you with this, Okay. What Haggai is going to say in, in verse 6 and then 9 through 11 is he's going to say, look, the fruit that's coming from your life or another way to say it is the results that are coming from not prioritizing God are not good. When we seek satisfaction in something other than God, what the Bible says says, again and again, and what I can tell you from my own experience again and again is that we are going to come up empty every single time. Go read the book of Ecclesiastes, written from the the perspective of a king, someone in the position of power who had it all, riches, wealth, women, prestige, popularity, power, making decisions, whatever. He, He had it all, and he says in each and every case It's all vanity. It doesn't add up. It doesn't satisfy. And this is what we need to see is going on in Haggai as well. Look at verse 6. It says, you have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns his wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. I mean, such descriptive uh, language and picture to, to see that they're not experiencing the blessing of God because God loves them so much that he would continue to discipline them in order to grab their attention to call them back to himself. Continuing in verse nine, you look for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? Because my house lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above, you have withheld to do, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills and on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and all of their labors. So God again is, is, is desperately trying to grab their attention to say, look, the alarm should be sounding off as you are serving your life and the condition of your souls you have to consider your ways and then prayerfully come back to God. And so what I want to ask you this morning is a very simple question. And ultimately, only you can answer this question. And simply this. Does God have first place in your life? Does God have first place in your life? Like on a day-to-day basis, when people look into your life, would they conclude that God has the first place in your life? Or have you grown so distracted? Have you prioritized other loves in your life that aren't bad in themselves, but they become bad when they become greater than God? Have you moved away from God's plan one small step at a time where all of a sudden your heart is kind of numb to the things of God and and he's not your first priority? Where are you today? As, As you examine yourself, as you consider your ways, is God first in your life? As people have pointed out before, if we would examine our time, how do you spend your time? If we would examine our treasures, how we spend our money. Examine your, your talk. Like, what do you talk about? What, what comes out of our hearts Through our mouths is a reflection of what has first place in our lives. Do you ever talk about God through the week? Are you talking about him in your home, in your relationships, in your workplace even? Like is God ever on your mind so much that, that you have to talk about him? what gets you excited? What is your heart beat for? When you wake up in the morning, what, what is it that is motivating you to live your life? How you would answer all those questions will help you identify, consider your ways, and see if God has the first place in your life. Now, let me just assume that not 100% of us can answer that question in the affirmative. Yes, God has first place in your life. Or maybe you say, you know what, Tanner? You know, for a season in my life, yes, God had the first place, but now, you know, I I love him, but but I'm not really living in a way that would reflect that he is my greatest object of affection and and worship. And so I know we've all been there, right? Even as Christians, I know know we've been there. Perhaps you are there. And so let me give you a, a remedy for spiritual apathy. Okay, you ready for this? If, if the Israelites had grown numb, complacent, apathetic to who God is, I, I want to suggest that the reason for that was that they lacked a grand vision, a clear vision of who God is. If, if we see God for, for truly for who he is, we will necessarily be compelled to worship him. This verse that we've been meditating on all year, it's, it's been on this, this, this banner all year long. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. I mean, just, just break that down with me. Think about it here. Like, why is, is God greatly to be praised? Why would we move to the great praise of God? Because he's great! Because there's no no one, nothing higher, better, more worthy than God. His greatness is unsearchable. You can't begin to search out how great, how worthy God is. And so if if we are not moved to worship God with our lives, it's because we we don't see clearly how awesome and great he truly is. There is, there is nothing, please, please hear this, you might want to write this down, you might want to remember, I think. there is nothing monotonous about glory. You with me there? What's monotonous about glory? What's monotonous about all Perfection. One of the great questions every Christian should ask themselves regularly is this Has my passion for God cooled in any way? It would be good to write that down. Put that in your calendar, like at the end of every week, at the end of every month. Has my passion for God cooled in any way? Because I'm telling you, it does. Again, we're distracted, we're busy, we have so many things on the calendar, man, and we're just going through life, and all of a sudden we're going through the motions, and then we slip spiritually away from God where we become indifferent and apathetic. And so this is a question that only we should ask of our life has got my passion for God cooled in any way, but this is a question that every church should ask of themselves as well. Man, we're three and a half years in, man, things are going good. We had a lot of people here last Sunday. So What? If our passion for God is, is cooling in any way, I mean, it's a call. We're three and a half years into this thing and we should be seeking God with all of our hearts saying, God, fill us up. Fuel us with, with all of who you are that we might love you preeminently above everything. Because you're so great, we would greatly praise you in all aspects of our lives. I love this Augustine quote. You're going to want to write it down because I don't have time to unpack it the way that I would like to unpack it. But, but Augustine says this, he loves thee too little, who loves anything together with thee that he loves not for thy sake. All right? In other words, we love God too little. If, if our love for God should be up here, we're loving him too little. If, if anything else in our life, family, relationships, job... Interest, hobbies. If we are not loving these things for the love of God, then we are loving God too little. Do you get that? This is a clear statement on priorities. We should love everything. This church, our friends, our work, we should, we should love it all as an expression fueled by our ultimate love for God. That is what Jesus means when he says, but seek first the kingdom of God. I and mean, God is going to take care of you. He's going to provide for you. And 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 when man, we're talking about sex. Man, sex is a good gift. But it's but it's good according to God's design. So so as we treat sex in the way that God intends and we and we're loving God preeminently, man, sex is really good. Sex is glorifying to him. It's to be enjoyed. And we could talk about this in anything under the sun. Making money. Earning a wage. It's not a bad thing, but are we doing it because we love God? Are we doing it for our own selfish ambitions? Has your passion cooled for God? As as a church, is is our passion cooling in any way for God, or are we so delighting ourselves in him that we're so filled with the spirit that we are moved to, to worship him greatly with our lives? Let's pray, let's ask God to fill us with that kind of devotion to him. Number two, we should be moved to joyful obedience in light of God's provision for us. Look at verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, they they considered their ways, all right? This is what Haggai instructed them to do. So they considered their ways, and it says, Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shittil, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. And the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message, I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shittil, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. All right, we have got to move through these verses with a decent pace, but I'm going to give it to you very simply, okay? What happens here is that the people consider their ways and they get to work. This is good news. This is how we should respond to God. When God gives us a message, we respond in worship by fulfilling what he says. So now how do, how do they do that? I want to give you four truths about obedience. Two have more to do with us and two have more to do with God, although they are obviously connected in every way. So, so number one, true obedience is ultimately a step of devotion. All right. So, so they, they hear the word of God just like we do every Sunday morning, just like we do when we, when we read in the morning or when we gather with friends in our community group. We're, we're exposed to the word of God. And, and we, we actually worship when we hear the word and we worship when we respond to the word. Worship is not limited to the songs that we sing together on Sunday. It's all worship. And so when we obey God, it is an act of devotion. And you say, "Well, Tanner, can you like confirm that in these verses absolutely because at the end of verse 12, what does it say? It says the people feared the Lord. So so what does that mean? It means that that there was such an an awe in their hearts for God, that there was such a reverence in their heart for God, that they weren't simply going through the motions saying, yeah, I've got to pick up some some stones and put them in place, and I'm going to go through these empty religious motions, but I am actually going to put my heart in this because there is nothing I'd rather do because God is this great. Amen. Amen. You know what I'm saying? Because I'm just telling you the default mode of our heart is to go through the religious motions, be a Pharisee, look good on the outside when our heart is not in it. Why did you read your Bible this week? Like, why did you go to community group? Why did you come this morning? We talk about this all the time. God is after our hearts. He wants what's inside. And then what's inside works itself out externally in in glory and praise to him. So true obedience is, is ultimately a step of devotion. It's also a step of faith. Okay, so what they were saying in this is that God has not, has not forgotten us. God has not left us. He has promised to dwell among us. And so brick by, by brick, we are going to trust that God is going to hold good on his promise, and he is going to, to come through. I mean, I, I love... In the book of Haggai, you're going to see this phrase again and again. If you were reading carefully with me, you will see the Lord of hosts, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of hosts. Okay, this is, in some translations, it's the Lord Almighty, the Lord Almighty. In other words, you have been, I mean, put ourselves in the, the exile shoes. They have been displaced for 70 years. You think they have a lot of morale? You think they feel great about themselves? They're walking through their city and their temple is lying in ruins. I mean, they were a people who had been beat down by life and by by those around them. And yet God is saying, you know what? I'm still God. Maybe that's you, man. Maybe you've got a lot going on in your life and and you wanna prioritize God, but you just find it difficult right now. And, And maybe what you need to hear more than anything is God is God Almighty. He is the Lord of hosts. He is sovereign over everything. And his presence then is what gives us the strength as we face any form of opposition in the work. Which leads us to then the third truth about obedience. True obedience is fueled with the presence of God. I mean, did did you catch that four-word message in verse 13? Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am with you. I am with you. I mean, the presence of God is all we need. It's all we need for any challenge in life, any obstacle in life. If God is with us, and as Caleb said in our worship, oh, by the way, he is if we are in Christ. Through his spirit dwelling in us, we have everything we need for life and godliness. So it's it's, it's his presence that then fuels our obedience It gives us confidence in the work. If, did, did Paul not say it well in Romans 8? Like, if God is for us, who can be against us? You can go, you can go to battle with those words, right? Like, in a, in a holy kind of way. We can step into the work that God calls us to because God is with us. He gives us everything we need. And then finally, true obedience is fueled with the power of God. Look at verse 14 again. It says, the, the, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the spirit of Joshua, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people, and they came and worked on the house of the Lord. So, so this is what is so good about the Christian life. If you are in Christ, God calls you to live your life for him, and it is not easy. It takes divine, supernatural strength, and yet it is God who stirs us up to love him, gives us desires to love him, gives us the power to fulfill what he has asked us to do. So there is nothing in your life. What is it spiritually that you just don't think you can get enough energy up for, or get enough spiritual strength to, to fulfill that? Is it, is it consistently reading your Bible? Is it finding time to get into a community group? Is it sharing your faith? Man, we hear this all the time. I mean, it's hard. I like boldness. I want to share, but I don't know how to get into the conversation. I open my mouth to tell people about Jesus. And it's like, man, whatever that thing is for you or whatever those things are for you, right? God has given us everything we need. I love what Augustine says again. He says, this prayer, and maybe you want to make this your prayer today. Lord, command what you will, but give what you command. God, ask of me, Tanner Turley, this week, whatever you want to ask of me, even if you ask me to lay my life down in a variety of ways. But if you ask me to lay my life down, Lord, then you give me the strength to lay it down again and again and again, to die to myself every single day so that I can love others and love you with everything I am. And that is, friends, what God does. This is the power of the gospel. Jesus died on the cross, not just to get us in with him, but to keep us in with him, to fuel us as we journey with him all the days of our life. This is crazy power here, man. I mean, I just hope you feel what God is saying in Haggai here. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work, according to his good pleasure. Philippians 2. Colossians 1, we, it's our aim to present everyone mature in Christ, so we preach Christ, and yet as we do that, we, we struggle, we toil, but, but how does Paul toil? He says, with all of his energy that he powerfully works within me. And so listen, if you don't think you can live the Christian life this week, go back and read Ephesians 1 that says the same power that raised Jesus from the dead and raised him up at the right hand of the Father is at work in us who believe. So I just want to close with a simple question. What is it that God is calling you to do? What is God calling you to do? What area of holiness and purity is God saying you need to say no to ungodliness and yes to righteousness so that you can more clearly live your life for me? What is it in your life that you need to set aside so that you can prioritize what I desire for your life? Is God calling you to share the gospel with a coworker, with a friend, with a neighbor? Is God calling you to, to, to give up some of your, your own time and sacrifices? You know what I'm saying? Maybe eat a, a few more peanut butter and jelly sandwiches so you can buy a meal and take it to someone who's in need. And there are people in our need all the time in this church and in our world around us. I mean, it's just the, the, the opportunities are, are endless. And only you know what God is calling you to do. So let's pray. Let's seek him. Let's set aside our own selfish desires as we consider our ways so that we might wholeheartedly with great passion fueled by the presence and the power of God that we would be a people, a church that shines the light of Christ so brightly because he is at work in us. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that you do not leave us to ourselves. We thank you that everything you ask us to do, rebuild a temple, repent of our sin, share Christ with a neighbor. Lord, everything you ask us to do, you give us the power to do it. So Lord, I pray that we as a church would delight to submit ourselves to you, that we would delight to give ourselves to you again. God, I pray that, that the considering of our ways would not be a 35-minute exercise on a Sunday morning, but that this week, we, we as a people would stop and pause and consider our ways, consider how we can, can more wholeheartedly live our lives for you. And so, Lord, as we continue in worship, God, we pray that you would ignite our hearts to fear your name, that you would ignite our hearts to love you more so that when we leave this place, the light of Christ would shine in Medford and around greater Boston and, and clearer and brighter ways, that we would radiate your radiance as you fill us up with your spirit. God, we're so grateful. Help us to worship, we pray. Amen.